Morning, and welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today's topic is the the topic of financial stability, of what it takes to do the right things to eventually be in a situation where your financial situation is stable um, as you grow older. And so you'll hear throughout today's uh, program uh, references to what it is that are the key elements of the discipline uh, for creating a plan and executing that plan and working with a professional. And in that regard, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group. It's a firm dedicated, uh, dedicated to educating its clients to making informed decisions about their financial future. And you'll, you'll tell once you hear Jason that he himself personally very much subscribes to helping people to understand um, what those key steps are, um, what that discipline is um, that you need to have to be financially stable. Welcome to the program, Jason. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, in, in 2014, we saw some improvements in, in the economy um, over the previous uh, couple of years, and over the last few years, we've seen... Uh, uh, an improvement in uh, the national and, and even the global economy, um, and the U.S. is, is faring somewhat better uh, than the rest of the world, uh, something that I think some folks uh, uh, tend to forget. Um, and um, I think the only significance of that is that uh, people may need to continue to be patient um, uh, as the economy recovers um, even as it's recovering at a faster rate than a lot of other uh, a lot of other nations, but uh, against that backdrop uh, of a, an improving but not a a, a perfect um, state uh, financially economically, um, what 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 kinds of things um, did the resource planning group encourage its clients uh, to do? Uh, to initially weather the storm and then to sustain themselves, uh, uh, things that they uh, you encourage them to do or refrain from doing uh, over the last few years, uh, and then how that might have been different from those first uh, couple of years, which uh, were, were pretty dismal for some folks. Yeah, the the short answer to all that is not much. Um, we you know, and I think that's. Tr- that sounds troubling at first to a lot of people when you're going through a, a storm and you're told, okay, just just sit and be patient and this will, good times will come. And, you know, but, but history has, has really taught us and evidence has really taught us that the discipline long-term approach is, it tends to be a more successful, it may not be as much fun, um, but it tends to be a more successful approach for investing in general than trying to sell at the, you know, sell at whatever point you want, buy at whatever point you want, um, because, and again, this goes to evidence. Evidence suggests that we are human beings. We make bad decisions. We're behaviorally flawed, and um, and and we're overconfident, and we tend to hold lo- losses or losers too long, and we 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 make irrational decisions generally, and so. Um, that means that if you are making those decisions, you're generally making bad decisions, and the evidence is there to support that. You know, there, there's there's literally hundreds of 
documents and academic papers that have have gone through this to suggest that um, you know trying to that people who trade too often tend to do a lot worse um, than than others. So you know the, the short answer is we you know not much. Uh, you know we we do um, we do and this will get into kind of the business. We try to do some thing. We do three things um, when it comes to investing, and one is we try to avoid making our own behavioral mistakes. We try to help our clients um, avoid making behavioral mistakes, and we try to exploit the behavioral mistakes of the rest of the six billion people on the planet. And so, there's some things we do to, on, the, on the second point to try to um, reduce the behavioral mistakes that others might make, or that our that, sorry that our clients might make. In fact, you and I had a discussion um, before today's program about just how much of investment behavior is uh, just that. It's it's behavior. And that it's trying to help folks not make emotional decisions, um, either selling themselves or instructing their financial advisor to sell when they shouldn't be uh, or making purchases themselves or instructing their advisor to make purchases when they shouldn't be. Uh, being it in... in, in Having a plan um, that uh, is executed over the long haul uh, really means that you should have faith in that plan and you should uh, understand that over the course of just a few years, much less a few decades, a um, well-designed plan that is tweaked slightly um, is going to weather the storm. Uh, so much better than if you start making those emotional, uh, hasty decisions. Uh, so that really is, at the core, we're talking about good behavior versus bad behavior, disciplined versus undisciplined uh, uh, investing, if you will. Um, and, and consequently, um, having a balanced portfolio uh, is a part of um, that plan and um, the execution of that plan to maintain a balanced portfolio becomes a, uh, a major part of it. Uh, a lot of people have heard that term, and people who um, n- now have good uh, financial uh, advisors uh, understand very well that a quote-unquote balanced portfolio represents so many different approaches for so many different uh, individuals given their um, their their assets and given their uh, risk behavior and given uh, the goals that they might have uh, for uh, transferring wealth at some point in time and, and a lot of other factors. Um, when you encounter someone who says, uh, so Jason, what's your take on a balanced portfolio? Uh, what does it represent? And and maybe if we could talk about, uh, in very gen- general terms, uh, a, a balanced portfolio for a relatively young professional, someone maybe uh, who's really beginning to try to put together the equivalent of, of a portfolio in their late 20s, early 30s, someone who might be uh, in their uh, 40s, and then for latecomers, of which there are many, uh, even today, Lots and lots and lots of 55-year-olds, 60-year-olds really never had a plan. And they're now coming to the realization that they could be living another 30 years there or, or more. They're 60 years old and they realize, wow, 
Um, I was thinking that I might live to about 75. I didn't think it would be 95. And so if we break it down into those three very generalized categories, uh, a younger uh, investor, uh, a a middle-aged investor, uh, give us some examples of what a, a portfolio for a relatively young person could look like. Okay. Um, so th- I think there's there's two things to start with. The, the first rule is don't take useless or unnecessary risk. That tends not to apply to a young person who's accumulating assets. It tends to apply to the older pers- older couple or older person that you described. So I'll come back to that. Um, the the second part is to what we're what we're essentially or what anyone really should essentially try to do is to take the most aggressive portfolio, the, be- the most aggressive balanced portfolio that they can live with through thick and thin. So the most aggressive portfolio that they can stand, you know, that they can deal with even in the most, even in the worst times. And, and most people wouldn't put those terms necessarily together, most aggressive and balanced. Right. Could, but there is a, a, a sweet spot yeah. uh, there, right? So when I say, you know, when we talk about balance, and it may be good to de- define that, I mean, balanced is, um, at a, in a simple context, it's stocks and bonds. Like what, when I talk about risk, you know, how much in stocks and how much in bonds. Now, it gets, in 2015, it gets a little bit more complicated than stocks and bonds. But at the end of the day, that's really essentially what you're talking about is you, know, you want balance. You want diversification. We're not talking about 10 stocks and 10 bonds. You know, hundreds, thousands of stocks, thousands of bonds, but when you talk about uh, balanced in forms of in terms of risk, you're talking about what allocation of stocks and, and what to bonds. Um, and and also um, um, assets, um, which for a lot of people could include uh, their home. You know, could yeah. be one of the most significant uh, aspects. And, and actually is for many millions yeah. uh, of Americans. They're, uh, they're, uh, the s- few hundred thousand to many hundreds of thousands to few millions to many millions that they have invested in their home often becomes one of the single biggest uh, elements in their, in their portfolio. So that balance could include um, something like the, the house, you know, your, your, your property. Uh, along with stocks and bonds. Yeah, absolutely. And I would add one to it, Ron. The, um, for a lot of, when you talk about young people, intellectual capital. Like that is actually the biggest asset of someone who's just graduated from college or graduate school. It's not the financial assets. It's not the house or the car or the uh, bank account. It is basically their brain and all the future earnings that come from that. And so when you when you actually think about asset allocation from a purely academic standpoint and why it makes sense for a um, 25-year-old or a 30-year-old to have a more aggressive portfolio, um, yes, they have a longer time horizon. That, you know, that makes sense for the fact that they can withstand more ups and downs. But uh, importantly, they also, if you think about that brain power, that, that intellectual um, capital as a bond-like asset, and it really depends on what industry they're in. If they're, you know, if they're a doctor, arguably it's pretty bond-like. If they're, um, I don't know, if they're a real estate salesperson, maybe it's less bond-like. But if you, you, know, you think about that intellectual capital as bond-like, so you've got this huge bond allocation up in your head, and so that argues for a big stock allocation in your investment portfolio. 
that that very process of evaluating um, what a uh, client's intellectual assets are, um, which, as you say, um, it has a lot to do with their profession, the industry segment that they're in, um, may have to do with um, their personal credentials, um, for example, um, and this might be a good time to get into uh, the notion that uh, it may not be true that the more you learn, the more you earn, but basically speaking, if a person has um, a master's degree and a Ph.D., um, they're probably an expert uh, in, a, in a given field. Uh, and then, given the stability of that field, and you're not going to have a Ph.D. in um, uh, residential home sales, yeah. um, but you might have an MD or a PhD uh, in the biological sciences or, or medicine. And um, there's a certain stability that's derived from that. Um, and that's just one minor aspect, you know, a person's personal uh, uh, professional makeup. How do you go about, what are some of the 20 questions uh, that uh, you ask in trying to assess a person's uh, intellectual uh, capital, uh, along with their risk uh, profile, and, yeah. and 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 explain risk profile. Sure. So the first one is, uh, you know, it's it's relatively it's easier. Um, there's nothing easy, but you know, if if you got a tenured professor, uh, you know, like that's probably the clearest example. That that's really Bond-like, and and. Um, someone who's well-trained and has lots of degrees and, and probably is going to be able to find a job. Like, you argue that's Bond-like. Right. They were disciplined um, to begin with to exactly. get those uh, and, degrees. And, and so, so that's, you know, that's that. As far as understanding, like, risk tolerance and getting back to that most aggressive portfolio, um, the, the um, you know, you can do risk surveys. And when we talk, we do um, – we, we do risk surveys, and, and but, you know, like, look, risk surveys really depend on – you're asking somebody 15 minutes, 10 minutes of questions, and it really depends on if they had coffee that morning or if it's raining outside or if it's sunny, how they answer those questions, and they're going to answer those differently in, in 10 days. I actually like to – um, you know, really try to dig into how they we had a we had a test of this how they how they um, acted how they behaved in the two thousand eight two thousand nine financial crisis. Um, uh, let's talk about that. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, let's talk uh, about that uh, very subject. We're here with Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group. We'll be back with Jason Lena right after this break. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. 
Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group, and we've been talking about basic principles for smart investment, uh, how to achieve a, a stability, um, the elements of, of discipline uh, that you need to create a good plan and execute that plan. And right before the break, we were talking about how um, we do have some recent examples of, of the way that people um, behaved given their uh, risk uh, profile uh, because uh, between 2008 and 2009, uh, many people uh, suffered some significant losses. Um, and so during that turmoil, how people uh, reacted uh, uh, tells us a lot. Yeah, I mean, you, you, when we talk, when we have that conversation, Ron, with someone, you're it's you're you're going on trust that like that's how they behave. So you're saying, okay, you know, I, I ask the question, what did you do when you're when you woke up and you saw that the market was down eight percent in the day, or what did you do when your portfolio was down X percent, and you. And, and that was a real experience. That's different from the hypothetical. Like, what would you do if you lost 15%? It was real. And so trying to get a, um, a handle on how people behaved in that real-life experience, I think, speaks a lot to what their risk tolerance it, uh, was and is. And, and what is it that you imparted to your clients? What, what, what do you think that you did um, to help your clients uh, exhibit the right behavior um, how does the resource planning group go about instilling uh, a sense of uh, discipline if you will um, in, in, in lots and lots and lots of professions um, the legal profession uh, the medical profession um, uh, hand holding uh, professional handholding is a big part of it. You know, hel- helping people have a, a, a sense of security, giving them a, enough knowledge, and then um, what could best be described as handholding goes on. Um, uh, what kinds of things that did uh, the resource planning group? Uh, uh, what do you do as opposed to what did you what did you do uh, that you think helped some of your clients uh, wake up and? either do the right thing or refrain from doing the wrong thing yeah um look it was a difficult period i'm gonna um vanguard um, a firm i have a lot of respect for a lot of people have a lot of respect for has done um some academic work on really um trying to determine what the um um, what the value add you know to quantify the value add of an advisor of a financial advisor 
and they did this work, and, and you can go find it on the web. It's um, they took a number of different things, like picking funds and asset allocation and tax loss harvesting, and asset location and, and a number of things, and they tried to quantify how much value are these adding. And the short of it is, one of those um, you know eight or nine areas that they looked at as far as advisor value add was behavioral coaching. I think they they termed it the biggest component of an advisor's ad by, by a ratio of two, a multiple of two. Uh, that, you know, when something along the order of one and a half to three percent, or I think one and a half to two percent of the advisor value add is, comes from behavioral coaching. And so um, it's, it is a critical piece of what any financial advisor do, d- does. I don't want to say like we're, you know, we're we're really good at that, and, and everybody else is bad. It's a critical piece of what financial advisors do. And, you know, to your point, Ron, I think walking, hand-holding people through that experience, telling them that, you know, like, look, um, we're going to come out of this okay, um, that was a critical piece. Um, there's a lot of, in in this day and age, there's a lot of um, robo, what we call robo-advisors that are popping up out in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, firms that will manage your money based on an algorithm at a small cost, and I think there's some you know there's some value to that. But the question is, do those really survive and add value in a, in the first market real market sell off? Because they haven't they haven't you know they didn't exist in 2000 2009. Um, as clients who are dependent on a computer an algorithm to invest their portfolio, um, maybe pull the plug and pull the plug at the wrong time because they're dependent because there's no one there on the other side of the phone to really walk them through. What's happening in the world, and you know why it's going to be okay. The the algorithm uh, may have had a, a a reasonable degree of utility, but the behavior um, wasn't uh, the other uh, component. Yeah. And uh, you know when I mentioned uh, that uh, attorneys and and, and doctors uh, also are in the business of uh, professional handholding, um, in, in the best sense. Um, I think that um, physicians, for example, try harder than ever to educate um, uh, clients about behavior, uh, good uh, um, uh, eating and exercise uh, habits. Uh, you'd almost think they were fitness uh, trainers, but but not quite. Um, and so that the behavioral component is 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 very very significant, and it'll 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 come up again in the course of of uh, uh, the program. What I'd like to do now, um, Jason, is have you tell us a little bit. Um, I, I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't get into um, some of the um, specific areas that the resource planning group uh, helps its its clients with. And you know, I, I I never like the program to sound like an, an infomercial, but at the same time, I I want to talk specifically about the areas of asset management, estate planning, wealth transfer. Uh, strategic philanthropy, uh, education funding, insurance, uh, income tax planning, and retirement planning. So uh, tell us, uh, let's take it from the top, tell us a little bit about uh, asset management. Asset management is really the foundation, I guess, of what most financial advisors do. It's um, why most people, it's how most people connect with a financial advisor in the first place, really just the, um, the hopefully intelligent management of investment assets. To uh, you know, to try to preserve and, and generate wealth. And, and you know, earlier we talked about um, uh, those asset assets now ranging from uh, um, 
stocks and bonds, uh, savings, uh, your your home and property, uh, your intellectual capital, and what you do with all those uh, assets. Um, estate planning uh, is one of those areas that is oftentimes uh, affected by um, uh, the law. Um, uh, but basically, um, tell us... Um, how you approach estate planning with with your clients? Yeah, so estate planning has changed a lot in the last three or four years. Um, we went from a um, 2010 to 2009, I think, in an environment where if you had more than as a as a single person, if you had more than a million dollars, um, you were going to potentially be subject to estate tax. And now we're in an environment where, if, as long as you have under five and five point four million dollars for a single person, or t- close to eleven for a married couple, you're not subject to estate tax. So that's changed the, you know, at least in the, with the clients that we work with, that's changed what we do. It's not. It's no longer trying to avoid estate tax as much as it is the blocking and tackling, dotting eyes uh, and crossing T's. Um, you know, making sure the important documents are in place, that the assets are are transferred to who to who they're supposed to be tra- or who they're intended to be transferred to, um, that assets are titled correctly. So that type of you know overlooked um, financial planning and estate planning is, and, and, is and critical. That essentially, goes hand in hand with 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 wealth transfer strategies. Yeah, right? so, yeah. I mean, that's right. Wealth transfer is a little bit what I described before, which is you know affected a lot more people. Five years ago than it does today. So people today say, "Well, I can only tr- I can only give um, fourteen thousand dollars a year to my niece and nephew or to my sons." You know, I, I tell people, "No, you can give a lot more than that because um, at the end of the day, unless your estate is north of you know for a married couple eleven million dollars, you're probably not going to have to worry about gift or estate taxes, at least the way the law is is now." So that has had uh, the wealth transfer affects a lot less people now it, you know, than it did five years ago. And do you find yourself um, now, um, rather than um, being restricted uh, and your clients being restricted, um, that you actually sit down and talk about the different options for um, uh, wealth transfer um, more than you did in the past? Um, actually, I, I would say less. I mean, I, we used to talk about grats and charitable lead trusts and um, you know, fun lawyer things. Um, th- th- we don't we don't have those conversations uh, much anymore because um, a state tax. At least, I mean, again, we're we're relying on the law that exists today, but um, it's most you know ninety nine point something percent of Americans aren't going to have to deal with gift or estate tax. Um, Tell us about um, uh, strategic philanthropy and how that fits into the big picture. I mean, there are probably clients you have that. Um, are very inclined to ongoing uh, annual uh, contributions uh, to, and are, are very philanthropic, and, and others who are probably not as active in that area. But uh, tell us about what uh, you consider to be uh, good strategic uh, 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 philanthropy planning. Sure, yeah. So I'm never really coaching someone on how much they should give. I go to meet a new person, get their tax return, go to the Schedule A, look and see how much did they put on that line where it says charitable gifts by cash. And if that's a big number, if that's you know, 5000 10000 more than that, um, and I see that they're giving that by cash, then I go look at the portfolio and I see that they've got a bunch of appreciated securities. Like that's a that's a first meeting conversation to say, hey, look, there's going to be more efficient ways for you to give money to your you know your 
former college or your church or whatever charities you're given to. Give me an and example of, of what a more efficient way. Yeah, sure. Um, so someone has a someone has they work for Apple and they own a bunch of Apple stock. That's they bought it basically, uh, you know, a dollar and it's now worth whatever. And a, a much bigger number now. So they ha- they want to maybe diversify that exposure. And well, how do you diversify? Well, they can sell a stock, and that's probably what they've been doing or going to do. Or they could say, "Look, I'm going to take. I, I want to make a gift over the next. I want to give to my church ten thousand dollars a year for the next five years. Okay, great. Let's take fifty thousand dollars of Apple stock and let's put that into it. What's called a donor advised fund. And these are little known, but but they're great for um, the average. Um, charitably inclined person, put that in there. Park away fifty thousand dollars, and they've avoided the they've avoided the tax that what would have been the tax on that realized gain of the Apple stock. And I use Apple stock as an example. Could be any stock, could be any fund, any asset. Right here, yeah. uh, more homegrown here in Atlanta, where we are, uh, the Coca Cola Company, sure. UPS, and there are a lot of people who are in that situation. Um, we're going to take another break, uh, Jason, and when we come back, um, we're going to have you talk a little bit about education. Uh, uh, funding, insurance, uh, income tax, and retirement, some of the other key elements of advisory uh, service that uh, the Resource Planning Group renders. Uh, we'll be back with Jason Lena right after this break. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Of the 50 programs. Yeah. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And we've been with Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group, and we've been talking about the basic principles of smart 
financial planning, uh, smart investment. We uh, we ended the, the last segment talking about asset management, estate planning, wealth transfer, and strategic uh, philanthropy. But now I want to have Jason uh, uh, pick up on uh, education funding, insurance, income tax, and retirement. But before um, uh, Jason uh, uh, addresses those areas, I, I do want to say um, we had a brief conversation while we were off the air, and really more and more Americans are now falling into the category of having um, a substantial wealth. We're not talking about millions and millions. We're talking about uh, a few hundred thousand to several hundred thousand that's worth uh, protecting and investing. And because uh, Americans are living uh, longer than ever, as, as people are around the world, but particularly in the U.S., we're seeing that uh, people are living into their 90s and beyond 100 years old, uh, which is the fastest-growing population segment in the United States. And I, I say that every now and then on the program. I, I work it in so that anyone listening out there that's in their 60s needs to come to the realization that uh, you not only could reach age 95, but you might reach the age of 105. And so there are financial uh, considerations related to that longevity uh, so that more people uh, can benefit from having a financial advisor than ever before. and that one of the reasons is that you're going to live, uh, in many cases, distinctly longer than you than you thought you might. So um, let's let's get back. Um, we're talking about the specific areas that the Resource Planning Group focuses on, and tell us a little bit about education funding because that's really really important to a lot of families, and and it'll never go out of style as an important consideration, simply because. Uh, even though um, there are uh, proposals to make uh, two-year community college programs uh, uh, free, uh, which it, it remains to be seen how that, that, that will turn out legislation-wise, um, uh, even free education uh, ultimately doesn't come out to be free. Uh, if you're a full-time student and you're really not working, uh, families are oftentimes subsidizing you. Uh, but particularly if you're going to a state university or a private school, um, uh, education can cost anywhere from uh, ten to easily $50,000 a year. Uh, multiply that by four, and you're talking um, up to a quarter million dollars if you uh, start today and your, your, your child is going to be going to a, uh, uh, a private university. So let's talk about uh, education funding. Yeah, sure. So this one differs depending on the – I mean, they all do depending on the situation, but you've really got the – you know how much do I need to be saving, and so we have that. You know we have that conversation, um, trying to really balance saving for retirement with saving from saving for education. And you know the the classic there is that you know like look, there's you can there's lots of ways to save to pay for college, you know, loans and grants and scholarships and private. There's not really anybody who's going to lend me or you money to retire, right? So like there's not really a lot of ways to pay for retirement other than do it yourself. And so we have that conversation balancing retirement versus education. Um, and then there's the, the vehicle, how do you save? So is it, you know, brokerage accounts or 529s or, uh, you know, there's uh, Coverdale education savings accounts. Um, and, 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 you know, sometimes the conversation is around um, student is around FAFSA and student aid, um, the, the federal aid form, um, and really trying to help people qualify for best qualify for financial aid without doing anything you know illegal or wrong but you know look there's some smart um, 
tactical moves that people can make to, uh, just like there are with taxes, to, to better qualify themselves for financial aid from, you know, for their children. Um, it, it, would you say it's it's uh, it's it's true um, uh, to characterize the cost of education uh, over the long haul uh, from elementary uh, school and preschool to through um, college and and even uh, postgraduate studies as potentially being. Uh, one of the single largest uh, areas of expense um, outside of uh, a family's home. Um, And I don't know that a lot of people think of it that way. Um, But if you have one, two, or three kids, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it only takes uh, um, uh, two kids at um, private universities and everything that led up to private uh, a, a, a private university education, which may include private schools, in these days, there are some people spending you know uh, ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year, uh, starting at age. Are you sitting down uh, six months? Uh, multiply that by uh, twenty years. Yeah. Um, so um, w- we are talking about. One of the and, and and maybe the only other area that might compare would be some sort of catastrophic illness, which which is hopefully uh, offset by uh, a combination of insurance and healthcare uh, programs. But education uh, becomes uh, really really significant these days. Yeah, I, I mean I've got three kids at home, so it, it hits close to home. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, didn't mean to alarm you, uh, uh, Jason. Uh, let's talk about insurance. Um, uh, this is an area where. Um, uh, a certain amount of insurance is a good thing, but some people oftentimes might have more invested in insurance than they need to. Is, is that correct? Yeah, this is I mean, this is probably one of the most overlooked. This is maybe the most overlooked area of financial planning. Um, I don't, you know, I don't sell insurance, but when when um, when you stop to look at someone's property and casualty and their life and their disability and the, there's a lot of opportunity or there's a lot of i guess people that are paying for things they don't need i just wrote about the top 10 or top 10 most over um overused insurance forms i guess maybe uh, and, and look there's you know when you look at somebody's auto insurance and you see okay you really don't need this and you really don't need this I mean, you're talking about real dollars and then you see people over insuring buying insurance they don't need and maybe it's long term care over over purchasing life insurance um yeah it's this is a um this is a real area where you can where you can save you know big dollars without really uh, Exposing yourself to you know more risks or uh, you know more catastrophic risks, I guess. Yeah, if nothing else, um, uh, insurance consumers should really take a close look at uh, the cost of the insurance, given uh, what kind of coverage you're getting, and then the larger uh, total uh, range of insurance uh, um, coverage that you have uh, for everything from homes to auto to to healthcare. and uh, I'm glad that that's one of those areas that you spend some time helping a, a person uh, look at because uh, I do believe that a lot of people uh, uh, sort of have this. I mean, certainly a lot of insurance uh, brokers um, subscribe to you can never be too well insured. Um, and there are people who believe that. But sometimes uh, it, it's it's overkill. And it would be great if insurance were directly linked to a 401k program or some sort of return on investment strategy, um, but they're not 
always their really ongoing expenses. Yeah, I think people forget that, and not, not to spend a, a lot of time here, but I think people forget that insurance companies make a lot of money and they employ a lot of people and they have expenses. And so there's not a free lunch here that, you know, if you're spending $100 on insurance, uh, you know, over the over a year and you keep doing that over your life, you know, the, that you're probably losing somewhere on the order of 30 to $70 of that $100 premium check that you're writing every year. Now, you may not lose it in any one year, but you have, you know, look, the insurance company has bills to pay and they have shareholders and so they're making money. And so if you go in with that idea that, hey, I'm losing money on any insurance that I buy, then you really start to think, okay, I really only need to buy insurance for catastrophe. Like, I don't need a $100 deductible on my automobile. You know, some maybe some people do, but you know, like really think about it as insuring catastrophe. Like, what would destroy you? Well, and if you have uh, money invested in other areas uh, that you could draw from sure. uh, at times of, of catastrophe, then you've hedged your bet in that way as opposed to strictly doing it through the insurance company. We call that self-insuring. That's absolutely right. Um, income tax planning, uh, boy, talk about a an entire ma- a major area that we could dedicate a, a, a program or two uh, to. Um, how do you help people? How do you begin to evaluate um, um, what kind of income tax strategy and plan a person should have? Yeah, again, this one, it depends. I mean, you, find, you have a self-employed business owner or business owner, and there's a lot of income tax opportunities for someone who's self-employed and who's running their own expenses. Um, for someone who works for, say, Coca-Cola, and they're just an employee at Coca-Cola, um, they get a W-2. They don't really have a lot of ability to maybe make those same kind of uh, deductions, take those same kind of deductions as a self-employed person. There's less opportunity. Um, you know, there's 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 opportunity for everybody to do income tax planning. I, I, th- I find that the biggest opportunity here for income tax planning, and it's 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 rather big, is for early retirees um, or, or really maybe any retirees, but really people who retire at 60, um, from 60 to, say, 70, have a real opportunity to um, to be smart about how where they spend from. Do I spend from my brokerage account? Do I spend from my IRA or my Roth or my 401k? And to um, exploit the tax code. I mean, the tax code is here. Here it's given to us. We we know what it, the rules look like, and so say, okay, here's the rules, and how do I make the most of what I've got in these different accounts that have different tax characteristics and the the rule book, the the you know the tax code. Um, and I say sixty to seventy because at seven because at seventy a lot of things happen. You have Social Security that's you know you're really taking it sometime bef- either before seventy or at seventy, and at seventy you also have um, required minimum distributions from a four hundred one k or an IRA where the government says you have to take the money out. And so there's less opportunity to income tax plan after seventy less. But in that sixty to seventy range, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. And we're again, we're not talking about uh, uh, cheating the tax code. We're just no. talking about exploiting uh, real existing um, uh, conditions, uh, including uh, leveraging your 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 assets. You know, which, as you say, which account do I spend from? Uh, that alone is something that a lot of people don't give any any thought to. Yeah, I mean, I think the the elevator answer, if you said fifteen seconds, where do I spend from, Jason? Like, okay, you spend from your brokerage account first, but the real answer, if you've got more. 15 seconds is um, let's be smart about this and maybe you pull some money from an IRA or 401k it's going to be taxable you know 
But you think about it as a 20-year horizon. Okay, how do I minimize my taxes? Not in 2015 or not in any one year, but over a 20-year period. That usually means, or oftentimes means, for a for an early retiree to pull some money out prematurely from an IRA or 401k, um, pay tax on that money with the idea of I'm going to minimize my taxes, my my um, my taxes over a longer time time period. Um, I do happen to know there are some 60 uh, to 7-year-olds that that tune into this program. And uh, uh, let this be a reminder to you that you might want to ask your financial advisor uh, about uh, how to maximize uh, your or how to create a a good tax plan uh, in this uh, decade. Um, How about... um, Let's talk about uh, retirement planning, that, that very huge area. You know, we, we just touched on it, and I mentioned a moment ago uh, about uh, Americans uh, in particular living longer. Uh, fastest growing segment in the United States are people over 100. That means a lot of people are going to have many years longer than they thought. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, let's talk a little bit about uh, that long-term strategy, which fits in with the theme of uh, disciplined uh, planning and investing. We're here with Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group. We'll be back with Jason right after this break. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Have you tuned into the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. We're here with Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group. We've been talking about uh, smart uh, investment strategies, uh, about uh, having the discipline to create a plan and execute that plan, and uh, and we've been reviewing the, the areas where the Resource Planning Group uh, focuses, and the one area um, that is is a paramount importance to uh, a, a lot of uh, folks just because of the size of the baby boomer population in the U.S. alone um, 
retirement planning. Uh, that must be an area that you expend uh, a lot of time addressing uh, these days because everything else that we're talking about, asset management, estate planning, wealth transfer, uh, strategic philanthropy, not so much education funding necessarily. It still could be. There are a lot of uh, youngish baby boomers with kids uh, that are uh, in high school or college. Uh, I actually have friends whose kids, uh, they're, they're about 60 and they have kids uh in high school, uh, so they're going to have kids in college. Or grandkids. Or, or grandkids, yeah. absolutely, yes. Um, and, and in fact, uh, that, that's uh, equally, if not more significant. Um, and uh, insurance, uh, income tax, um, let, let's talk about uh, retirement. And, and uh, uh, how do you, uh, I, I presume if you, you've had a client that, uh, for a decade or two, uh, and they've done some of the right things, um, a discussion of retirement planning is just an extension of what you've been doing, uh, of what you've been talking about. But uh, you must get uh, clients who uh, come to you in their late 50s, in their early 60s. Um, they didn't do anything dumb. Uh, they, you know, they, they have some savings. They had a 401k. They've uh, paid off their mortgage or close to it. Uh, they have assets that they now realize uh, need to be protected uh, and uh, how do you how do you begin that process of talking about retirement? What are some of the twenty questions you ask people about what they they want to do over the next twenty, thirty, forty years? Yeah, it really boils down to one word: spending. Like what, you know, there's a lot, there's lots more than that, but at the end of the day, a retirement plan is going to be largely dependent on spending. Um, and and so you know what do we mean? What does retirement planning really mean? It, it, it really Ron, it captures a lot of what we've already discussed. I mean some of those pieces that you just went through. Um, but fundamentally, what you're trying to what the question that you're answering with me talk about retirement planning is you're answering the question of of can I retire? I mean because a lot of people they're not working with a financial advisor. They work until they're 65 or they work until they're 62 and then they say, I would retire because that's what my neighbor did or that's what my parents did. But they really may not know if this retirement is going to work. Like, can I live to, you know, to your point, 95 and, and have this, have my financial assets support me? And so you know, I think the way most financial advisors treat retirement planning is answering is trying to answer, make educated assumptions about the future because we're going to get it wrong. It's going to be wrong tomorrow. Um, but make educated assumptions and really try to answer the question, does this work? And then you do that. You don't just do it once and say, okay, we did it. You're, you know, you're good or you're not good. Um, but you do that every you know, six months, every year, and really are, are you still on that path? And because more and more uh, Americans are either working independently or working for a company um, which doesn't have uh, a uh, uh, a retirement program, um, there are no pensions, um, or at least the number of pensions are, are, are shrinking. Um, it has to be considered earlier and earlier, and uh, it, it, it has to be more important. You could take a... Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned um, I'm 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 thinking about retiring in my early to mid 60s uh, because that's what all my friends are doing. That's what my neighbors are doing. But in reality, you can take a subdivision where everybody lives in a uh, a million dollar uh, home, or it could be 
five hundred thousand to five million dollars, but you know, a, a, a relatively homogeneous uh, group of of homes in a similar price range, but everyone's going to have a totally different situation uh, because some people um, saved more, invested more wisely, uh, had a financial plan earlier in their life, uh, uh, work for a company that maybe does have a uh, pension plan. Um, you know, one family has uh, several kids, another family has, another couple has no kids, whatever. It's it's like all across the board these yeah. days. Um, so um, that's got to be a, uh, a discussion. And as you say, uh, the first uh, consideration is, can I retire? Uh, I, I would imagine that people come in and ask you that question a lot. It's, you know, they they may or may not, but we ask that question. You know, I think financial advisors ask, ask that question for them. Say, so like, here's the question that you're really getting at: is can I retire? Either they're um, operating under the illusion that they can, or they don't want to go there because it's awkward. It's you know because it's painful to know that. Yeah. Um, I have to work for another ten years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and y- as you say, it reduces down to spending. Uh, you know, you have uh, uh, a lot of folks. Um, um, we don't have kids or grandkids, but we do like to travel. You know, how do you pay for that? You know, uh, and uh, um, let, let's let's talk about um, uh, Social Security for a moment. Uh, among um, moderately um, uh, high net worth individuals to distinctly high net worth individuals, uh, is r- uh, Social Security still a consideration? I think it's a big one. Uh, it, you know, like for the super wealthy, no, but for 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 most people, it is. Um, and and look, there's a there's a social security is complicated, um, and there's a lot of things that it, it there's a lot of things that people can do to make um, five figure differences on like w- what they get from social security. And I have a different way of looking at social security. I think than maybe the masses. I, I, I don't look at it as like I want to beat the government with Social Security or I want to I want to win against all the money that I put in over the years. Um, I, I go back to you know what you talked about, uh, Ron, with the with the possibility of living ninety five to ninety five or to a hundred, and and really the fundamental risk of retirement is longevity um, from a financial perspective. And so if you go in with that assumption that the 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 key risk of retirement is longevity. Um, how do you maximize? How do you use Social Security as almost an insurance policy to um, minimize that longevity risk? And most of the time, that means deferring Social Security as long as possible to create a to create a bigger benefit, which is the you know the in essence it's buying a bigger um, annuity, lifetime annuity that will when you're 90, if you, if you do live to ninety five, it will better support you at that later point in life. Yeah, it's got to be a, uh, a critical discussion uh, that, that you're having increasingly because, uh, again, the sheer uh, number of baby boomers these days uh, is probably a, a significant segment of the uh, research planning group's uh, client base. Um, for, for listeners out here who want to learn a, l- a little bit more about uh, Resource Planning Group, the uh, website is www.rpgplanner.com. And uh, w- one of the things you can see uh, uh, at the uh, rpgplanner.com website 
uh, is uh, a list of some of the recent blogs. Uh, there was a blog uh, related uh, ter- to, um, uh, it was entitled, Marshmallows and Long-Term Investing, and it's a message about uh, emotional bias versus discipline investment, which we've been talking about. But tell, tell me a little bit about uh, marshmallows and long-term investing. Yeah, it's actually it's, it's fresh. I just wrote that a couple of weeks ago. Um, it actually there's a famous uh, behavioral study done in the I think the 1960s um, where kids were put into a room with a, a marshmallow and they were told, "Here's a marshmallow. You can eat it right now, but if you wait 15 minutes, you're going to get and you don't eat it, you get two." And so they did that experiment. And there's actually some great YouTube videos you can go look at to see this video being done modern day. But um, what they found was that uh, two-thirds of the kids couldn't wait the 15 minutes, and they would eat the first marshmallow and not get a second. So it, 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 was, a, it was a study of, uh, of discipline. But what was, what was maybe more interesting was when they went back and looked at the kids who had the one-third of the kids who had not eaten the marshmallow and waited for two, um, 20 years later, 15, 20, 25 years later, um, what they found was that those kids, when they when they controlled for things like their ethnicity and their backgrounds and their and their demographics, they found that the kids who had that discipline, who had either they had a discipline instilled in them, that one third, they were more successful in nearly every stage of life. They had better grades, they had better SAT scores, they had higher paying jobs, they were less likely to to you know to abuse alcohol and drugs. And so it was just an interesting, you know, it was an interesting study in human behavioral, and I just applied that to um, to investing because I think there's a there's a clear um, analogy there. Um, you can you can read that uh, on the uh, uh, rpgplanner.com website. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a nice uh, story, um, and uh, it uh, sort of reminded me of the tortoise and the hare. Um, Jason, I want to thank you for taking the time for uh, being on the program. Uh, that last little story sort of characterized what we've been talking about, and I'm certain that you try to help uh, folks that are in those uh, two-thirds that uh, ate that marshmallow uh, and didn't uh, wait until they got two marshmallows to exhibit and to actually uh, have the kind of behavior and discipline to, uh, to, to, to have a more stable uh, financial future. Thank you, Jason Lena of the Resource Planning Group, for being my guest today. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on from 10 to 11 a.m. on Fridays. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on the radio next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.